This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we've got Dr. Sam Storms with us, and we're responding to the cessationist documentary. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a show where we tackle history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit. My name is Joshua Lewis. I'm the pastor of King's Fellowship in Ada, Oklahoma, together with my friends Michael Miller at Reclamation Church Denver and Michael Roundtree at Bridgeway Church OKC. We set aside time every week to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like, how should we pray for the sick? And how do we interpret tongues? And should we believe all the prophetic words for the new year? If you're looking for a charismatic podcast with practitioners who are actually doing the stuff, this is the show for you. Well, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be discussing the cessationist movie. If you don't know, we've been doing a very thorough, uh, shot, basically shot for shot, uh, response to the cessationist documentary. This is installment number five. Uh, we asked Sam to wear an extra sweater vest uh, for this program because we want to make sure he's extra ready uh, for the response. I'm just kidding. He's only wearing one. Two would be silly. Uh, I did Photoshop two of them on him in the Photoshop thumbnail for some reason, but we're excited to dive into the program. We responded to claims about history. We responded to claims about Ephesians 2.20 and Hebrews chapter 2 and First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter 12. Over and over and over again, we have done tons of responses to the cessationist documentary. Now we're diving into three, uh, four specific clips on the gift of tongues, immorality, uh, reformed charismatics, and worship. Those will be the clips we're tackling today in this video. Uh, but before we dive into it, Sam, it's excited to have you here on the program. Tell us about the Convergence Church Network. Tell us about the blogs that you're writing, because as we're doing shot for shot, you know, responses, you're doing word for word responses there on the blog. Let us know about all the different things. Uh, yeah, I I think today was either the 12th or 13th article. I've been posting them every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Uh, so they can go to samstorms.org and read my response to virtually every argument in the film. Um, I think I have about two more to go. Uh, so it's been good. I've enjoyed doing it. Um, I've been, been getting a little pushback here and there. Interestingly, None of the pushback is challenging my interpretation of the biblical text. Uh, it's always throwing back in my face some scandal, somebody who's doing goofy things, uh, but nobody's engaging with the word of God, which it, honestly, I expected that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, the Convergence Church Network, um, probably going to go um, public on this on December 1st, right around the first week of December. Still putting together a few things here and there. So uh, keep an eye out on my blog. I'm sure that you guys will announce it uh, here on Remnant Radio because all three of the Remnant guys are on the board of the Convergence Church Network. So we'll let everybody know when it's ready to go. We're excited about it. Uh, So keep an eye and ear open. 
That's right. So if you if you didn't catch that, Convergence Church Network is a word and spirit network for churches like-minded that are wanting to pursue a faithful biblical exegesis, but also pursue uh, the gifts of the Spirit. And that's a network of related associated churches that we're going to be uh, talking about here shortly. So we'll let you know when there's information to know about that. Miller, do you have any kind of announcements, things you want to respond before we dive into some of these clips? Uh, no, man. Just uh, excited about diving into this episode you know funny enough we just did a conference last weekend on the gifts of the spirit specifically regarding healing and deliverance and there were several noteworthy healings that took place but they still wouldn't match up for our cessationist friends because we can't do it on demand as they say the gift of healing works so uh despite the fact that there were a number of flat feet that actually changed shape that's something you can medically document and uh deaf ears that opened up um it still wouldn't qualify though as the kind of miraculous things that they're looking for and some of them right I, some I, of them seriously hold... doubt, I seriously doubt if the people who no longer have flat feet and can now hear would care whether or not it measured up to the cessationist standards that's right, right. That's right. Well, guys, we want to say this on the front end. We try to do this as much as possible. For the guys who've made the documentary, Open Dialogue is on our side. If you want to jump on the program, you want to do a discussion with us, uh, to Les, Tim, others who've been involved in putting this documentary together, uh, we extend that invitation for people who are in the documentary, people who hold these views. We consider you Christian brothers. We don't think that you're heretics. We don't think that you've apostatized from the Christian faith. Uh, we, we hold you uh, near and dear to our hearts, pray for you. We're doing these responses because we don't think your arguments are good. It's not that we don't like you as people. It's that we think your arguments are rubbish. So we're going to dive in with that uh, uh, kind of uh, heads up. Uh, let's do clip 16, The Gift of Tongues. It wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century that the charismatic movement began in earnest. Uh, there were people who had tinkered with healing gifts and healing claims up to that point. But the gift of tongues first manifested itself really on the very first day of the 20th century. On January 1st, 1901, Agnes Osman, who was one of the women who was studying under Charles Parham, she began speaking in tongues. Other students also began speaking in tongues. It became known as Pentecostalism because the idea is that they were speaking in the very same kinds of tongues as the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And that, of course, is important because the apostles on the day of Pentecost were speaking in genuine human foreign languages, which they had never learned. And Agnes Osmond, Charles Parham, they all insisted that they also were speaking in genuine human foreign languages, which they had never learned. In fact, Agnes Osmond claimed to be speaking in the Chinese language. They show a clip right after that clip of, uh, of, of her Chinese scribbles. Uh, they, they don't look legible of, of, of any kind of uh, <laughs> dialect of any kind. So I just, just want to say yes and amen. It definitely wasn't a known human language that they were speaking. Uh, they're... Uh, out of Zusa Street. So uh, who wants to dive in first in response to this? I mean, uh, I think the argumentation, we could do the historical side of this, but we could also do the, you know, engaging with the, the conversation about known human languages, because they will take Acts chapter two and make it the required standard of all future forms of glossolalia that take place uh, from that moment forward. So uh, anybody want to dive in first? I'll pass it over to whoever wants to go. Well, I'll give it a shot. <clears throat> uh, yeah, the uh, you just mentioned it, Josh. There's no reason, there's no biblical text that would require us to think that Acts 2 is kind of the standard for all subsequent tongues. We agree with them that the tongues on the day of Pentecost were known human languages. That's obvious. I, I don't think there's any question about that. But they also say that uh, the purpose of tongues was evangelistic, 
and to serve as a sign against unbelieving Jews. Well, the problem with that is you have two other instances of tongues in the book of Acts, Acts 10 with Cornelius. He's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. And in Acts 19 with the disciples of uh, John the Baptist, there were no unbelieving Jews present on either of those occasions and nobody was evangelized by means of them. So even in Acts, that standard doesn't hold up. And then, of course, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 12, verses uh, 10 and 28, uh, Paul talks about various kinds of tongues, that they're not all of one sort. And I take him to mean that there could be tongues of angels, there could be human languages, there could be uh, uh, tongues or languages that are crafted by the Holy Spirit. I call it a heavenly language. Um, and so it doesn't seem to me that Paul is insisting that it be a human language. But certainly I think the most decisive text, and I'll just read it, is 1 Corinthians 14, 2. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. All right, stop right there. What were they doing in Acts 2? They were speaking human languages to other men because we know those other men said, hey, we hear them talking in our own language, our own dialect. But here Paul says, this tongue speech is not to men, it's only to God. And then he says, because no one understands him. But everybody on the day of Pentecost understood the language that they were speaking. They said, that's our own. But Paul says, no one understands him. So if in fact, this is always a human language, anybody who spoke that language who showed up at the church at Corinth could raise their hand and say, Paul, I object. I think you're wrong. You, you, you missed it, buddy. I understand perfectly what he just said. And then Paul says he utters mysteries in the spirit. So all of these things indicate that he's obviously talking about some sort of heavenly dialect or language that those who have been given this gift speak that is incomprehensible to others, unless, of course, there is somebody with the gift of interpretation which is another argument. If all tongues are human languages spoke somewhere in the world, then the gift of interpretation is the one spiritual gift of them all that doesn't require anything from the Holy Spirit. Anybody who could speak that language. I mean, Paul obviously spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, probably Latin. Uh, others who would speak a variety of different languages. I mean, we know people today who speak 15, 20 languages. Um, they they could very easily say, well, yeah, I understood exactly what he was saying, but I didn't need a spiritual gift for that. I'm just well-educated. Um, so it seems to me that the argument that Acts 2 is the kind of the standard that dictates how all tongue speech is going to look or sound fails the test of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's, it's it's interesting you mentioned evangelism a moment ago uh, that they will say that these gifts are used evangelistically, uh, and yet the tongue speech seemed to only gather people from different regions and, and different groups on the earth. Peter still needed to stand up and proclaim, this is what you're hearing. Also, Jesus was crucified. You did this to him. And then they cried out, what do we have to do to be saved? So if tongues was the evangelism that was taking place in Acts 2, why did Peter need to get up and proclaim the gospel? Uh, in fact, every time we see tongues being used in the book of Acts, we never see it in relationship to evangelism. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about unbelievers being in the midst of the church and that we're not to use tongue speech in that 
uh, occasion. So I would just say yes and amen. And for people who are out there who just want the definitive work on tongue speech, I have a friend of mine who wrote this book, Language of Heaven. Uh, anyway, I'm just kidding. That's Sam's book. Uh, I, I found it on the internet and put a, a graphic of it real quick. Miller, I cut you off right as uh, Sam was w- was jumping in. No big deal. Um, I think the the other thing, Sam mentioned this, if the argument is that tongue speech is for the evangelization of unbelieving Jews, um, that seems to fail to recognize the polemical nature of what Luke is doing in Acts chapter 2. Um, they, they don't connect it eschatologically with Genesis 10 and 11, which I think Michael Heiser did such a wonderful job of showing us how you see in Genesis 10, the table of the nations, and then you see in Genesis 11, how those nations were created. Uh, and one of the ways that they were created is they were separated because of the whole Tower of Babel event, but they were separated by languages. And then Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 gives commentary on this. Um, But then in Acts chapter 2, we see God going after the Gentile nations. Well, how is he doing this? Well, he happens to have all these Jews that had been spread around to all these Gentile nations right there in Jerusalem when this is happening. So it's not just for unbelieving Jews. It's actually meant to be an incident, a, a way of God saying, now I'm going back after the other nations, which seems to be some of the great expectation of uh, the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that that Gentiles would be coming into uh, the faith and worshiping Yahweh from every tribe, every nation, and so uh, I I I think the the um, idea that this is just for unbelieving Jews, even in its own context, Acts chapter two is failing. It's it's for all people. Um, this is a way that God is bringing them back. And, and I would imagine on some level, the gifting of the gift of tongues is still uh, giving that message. But but obviously, there's another important factor that they don't point out, which one of the main purposes for tongues is simply prayer. I mean, that's what it says. Uh, for when I speak in a tongue, my spirit prays. So, and I think there, the, the, while this can be confusing for those who have never heard this before, um, you know, you hear some popular Pentecostal teachings that if you speak in a tongues, your prayers are more powerful. I disagree with this. I, I don't think tongues is for the super spiritual. I think tongues is simply for those who don't know how to pray. And God, in the midst of our weakness, has given us a gift to help us in this endeavor because prayer is important. And many times we want to pray, but we're lacking words because we're not super spiritual. And we need God's help to even do that very thing, to pray. And so that being one of the purposes just seems to get thrown out entirely. They don't even look at that as one of the reasons for why God may give that gift. Yeah, I think it's important. Another reason. Go ahead, Sam, jump in there. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul lists the gifts in verses 8 through 10, uh, one of which is tongues, and he says it's given for the common good. In other words, for the benefit and blessing of believers. And then he says the same thing again in chapter 14, when he says you need to interpret tongues, quote, so that the church may be built up. So again, it's for edification of believers. Uh, he then also, Michael, in addition to what you said, yes, it's for prayer, but it's also for praise, for worship. Paul says, I sing with the spirit. And it's also, he says, for giving thanks to God. So tongues has a multiplicity of purposes, most of which are for the benefit and the blessing and the edification of God's people for the Christian church. That's good. And I want to respond to this quote by Phil, where he says, you know, in the movement, people, uh, it started on on the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, You know, there were people who had tinkered with healing gifts uh, and healing claims up into that point. They just 
they did a little bit of tinkering here and there. Uh, if you watch our last week's video where we respond, you know, the thumbnail says something to the effect of if you're not a cessationist, you're not a Protestant. Um, but we engage with these claims that, that the Protestant Reformation and, and following until this crazy Pentecostal thing that took place at Azusa, there's no mention of these healing gifts. Um, but the problem with all of this is that there is tons of mentions of healing gifts um, from the apostolic uh, uh, the, the 12 apostles to, uh, you know, Nicaea and, and from Nicaea to the Protestant Reformation and from the Protestant Reformation to the Azusa Street Revival. We've recorded all of these wild supernatural activities. So the, the, the Antonician fathers, the post Nicaean fathers. The Moravians, the French Camisards, uh, the, the Scottish divines. We, we talked about Spurgeon. I mean, we went through long lines of individuals. We're not talking about one or two kind of sporadic moments, but basically through every subsequent century of church history, there have been people on the earth praying for sick people and seeing them recover and the gift of prophecy taking place. Now, of this list that I've mentioned, uh, the, the, the early church fathers saw the gift of tongues practiced in their midst. Uh, people after Nicaea saw tongues practiced in their midst. The Moravians saw it. The, the, the French uh, Camisards saw it. Many people, uh, obviously, uh, after uh, Azusa Street, saw the gift of tongues being exercised. And let's just pretend for a moment that there was no mention of the gift of tongues. Let's just say there was no mention of the gift of tongues uh, uh, from uh, Nicaea to present. Would that suggest that the gift of tongues shouldn't be in operation today? Uh, like we, we might have a number of the gifts that have been absent in the text of Scripture. H however, we're commanded with the text of Scripture to pursue spiritual gifts. And there's no prohibition for us to pursue spiritual gifts. There is no uh, a command that these things have ceased and we should stop pursuing spiritual gifts. So, so even if there was no mention of them in history, which there is, we are commanded to pursue these things and actively pursue these things. Any any further follow-up on this one, guys? I think this one was kind of a, a smaller of our three. Well, again, uh, one more thing here that I think is hermeneutical, uh, and it's the fact that most people, when they go to Acts, if you were to use Acts to make a defense for a particular gift, most people would say, oh, well, you know, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay, well, let's just say that Acts chapter 2 is that. Uh, the the argument they're making that tongues is has to be known human language. Where's it coming from? It's coming from a descriptive text, and they're only using one text rather than all the rest of Acts. But then when you go over to the prescriptive text, First uh, Corinthians, it says they speak mysteries. Nobody understands them. But I thought it had to be a known human language, not according to the prescriptive text. Hey, Miller, before we move off of this one, would you read some of these quotes that we have by the Moravians, the Camisards, the, the Quakers, something like that, just yeah, so sure. that we can, we can cite, hey, not just is it on Josh's word and you have to go watch a past video, but just some piece of information that can say, hey, we've seen this gift active in church history. Yeah, so this is uh, 15th century, the Moravians recorded tongue speech. You've got uh, John, I don't know how to pronounce, Roach, I think. 15th century, the Moravians are referred to by detractors as having spoken in tongues. John Roach, a contemporary critic, claimed that the Moravians commonly broke into some disconnected jargon, which they often passed upon the vulgar as exuberant and uh, resistless evacuations of the spirit. And we also have the commissards or French prophets. These were the early 1700s. Um, James Dubois of Montpellier. Payer, I don't know how to pronounce that again. Uh, he says, several persons of both sexes, James Dubois of Montpierre, recalled, I have heard in their ecstasies pronounce certain words which seem to be, by standards by, to be some foreign language. 
These utterances were sometimes accompanied by the gift of interpretation exercised in Dubois' experience, the same person who had spoken in tongues. And then another guy from the same era, a man named John Lacey, uh, in his cry from the desert, he says this, uh, he was an Englishman of sympathetic, who was sympathetic to the French prophets. He described their experiences. Some of them had the gift of prophecy and diverse tongues, and by laying their hands on others, communicated to them the Holy Spirit, as the apostles did. Oh, so that's interesting. You even see an impartation of gifts there uh, in uh, at that time. And then we have other examples of the Quakers. This is Edward Burrow made mention of tongues speaking in their meetings. We spoke with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance and his spirit led us. And then in the Church of Scotland, Edward Irving, uh, he was a minister at, in the Church of Scotland. He writes of a woman who could speak at great length and with superhuman strength in an unknown tongue to the great astonishment of all who heard and to her own great edification and enjoyment in God. Irving further stated that tongues are a great instrument of personal edification, however mysterious it may seem to us. Uh, just curious, Josh, that last one, the the Edward Irving, did you get that from uh, the Scotsworthies or was that somewhere else? Uh, I would have to look in the other list since we have uh, a different document for Sam because Sam doesn't use oh. the Google Doc, the, the giant mess of Google Doc that we have. Uh, I'd have to go look yeah. in the other document. I think it's in Scottsworthy's, but I'm not sure. Okay. That's written by John Howie, 1781. You guys should go check it out. It's free on Kindle. Oh, Sam, did you mute? That's good, Michael. I, I will say one thing. I, I, know, I know exactly how the cessationists would respond to that. They would say, well, those people don't count because they aren't Calvinists. I mean, seriously, that's what they would say, as if that mattered. I mean, I'm a Calvinist, but it doesn't matter to me that those people weren't. But it's, but it's weren't like, the Scottish well, Reformers Calvinists? These things show up. Weren't, among... weren't the Presbyterian well, Scottish yeah, Reformers yeah. Calvinist? Yeah, Edward Irving definitely was yeah, Calvinist. Oh, okay. <laughs> I I retract my st No, that's exactly what they would say anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say if, if anything's going to be valid, it has to be among people who are Reformed in their theology. Uh, which I, I think is, well, it's arrogant and it's just wrong. So, but enough of that. Yeah, yeah. The French, the French Camisards would have been uh, the 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 Scottish, not the Scottish, the um, yeah, the French. Obviously, the French Camisards uh, would have been the French uh, responders who would have been saying, "Hey, look, uh, this this is uh, uh, believing in the gifts of the Spirit. These tongue speech, these prophecies that were taking place, they were Calvinistic in their persuasion. Uh, so were the the Presbyterians uh, in Scotland. So so both of them, I would say, would be within that tradition. But but again, this is the this is that kind of leaning that says. Um, if there are manifestations, that must mean you're not theologically uh, uh, substantive. And if you're theological substantive, you can't believe in supernatural activity. And certainly these things right. aren't being performed through you. Uh, but that happens with, again, Charles Spurgeon, which is someone that we brought up in our last program, also Calvinistic in his leaning. So uh, I think that it is really just a selective reading of history. Um, and, and I don't even know if it's super intentional. We mentioned this in the last program. If you have a hero in the faith and there's a specific thing about their life that you're not super favorable of, that you don't really care to talk about very much, we see this in the, in the charismatic movement as well. We have our heroes that we we like to, you know, put on pedestals, but sometimes they had these moral failures and we don't like to talk about those. Um, so we intentionally may, don't mention them. I think the same thing's happening here with the cessationist group. 
they put these guys up on pedestals uh, and then we see some supernatural activities in their lives and we just stop repeating it. And because they are their heroes, they're the ones who really craft the story and hold on to those narratives uh, and continue per to perpetuate those. Uh, do you guys want to jump into this next video clip? Let's jump into clip number 17. You know, all those charismatics, they're all immoral. Let's let's jump into that one. <laughs> Some of the best known leaders throughout the 20th century in the charismatic movement turned out to be fakes and frauds and, and for various reasons discredited themselves. John G. Lake, Amy Simple McPherson, Smith Wigglesworth, Catherine Kuhlman, they were theological heretics. They were prolific false prophets. Most of them were sexually immoral. So how is it that these great generals of the charismatic movement, these men and women that God supposedly used to bring about the greatest move of his Holy Spirit since Pentecost were false prophets, liars, charlatans? and sexually immoral. At least they were prolific false pro I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I don't, like it's such a it's such an interesting or descriptive word. Prolific false prophets. Sorry, I'll continue. In the 80s and 90s, <laughs> you had a series of scandals with Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. Swaggart is stepping down from his powerful TV ministry while the Assembly of God Church investigates him for having an affair with a prostitute. I have sinned against you, my Lord. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and the continuing saga of the PTL club have taken on the irresistible dimensions of a national soap opera. Jim Baker was found guilty on all 24 counts of wire and mail fraud and conspiracy. What's remarkable is that every one of those men continued in ministry and were still accepted by segments of the charismatic movement. That doesn't disqualify a charismatic if you can prove he's a fraud. That works all the way up to someone like Todd Bentley, who is probably as despicable a character as ever took the stage in the name of religion. He had these ugly fascinations with violence and lowbrow means of supposedly healing. It took a long time, a remarkably long time, for even some of the better charismatics to say, no, this guy is not real. He's dangerous. I remember early on when he came on the scene, people asked John Piper what he thought of him. Piper was reluctant to say anything. He said, I just want to watch and see. So irresponsible for someone to withhold judgment until they see the fruit and teaching of someone's life. Um, let's... Hey. Uh, Sorry, I'm already jumping into it. Uh, my, let, me, my response. let me jump in, Josh. Yeah, please. You, go ahead. I got to say something right off the top. So what? What does any of that have to do with what the Bible teaches? The fact that there have been charlatans and hucksters in every segment of professing Christianity in every century doesn't tell us one thing about whether or not the Bible teaches us that we should expect, seek, pray for, and practice spiritual gifts. I mean, I, my response, for example, uh, uh, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker both believe in the Trinity. Does that mean that we shouldn't? Or uh, Martin Luther uh, was one of the most anti-Semitic individuals ever. He wrote some of the most vile and vicious things against the Jews. So does that mean we shouldn't believe in justification by faith? Uh, the, the argument, these ad hominem arguments <clears throat> excuse me, are useless. We, we all admit, yeah, there are people who have failed morally, they failed financially, and we could give uh, a number of names of people in the mainstream evangelical world who've done the same thing. But again, it's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, it brings reproach on the name of Jesus, but that doesn't tell me how to interpret the text of Scripture. I want to know what the Bible says, not what these individuals may or may not have done. Well, it, it, by their own standard, you'd have to throw out some of the authors of scripture. So let's take David as a case in point. Should we throw out a lot of the Psalms? Because after all, David did murder a man and stole his wife. 
So did Moses get rid of the Torah. Right. I, I think the, the by their own standards, they would shoot their own prophets. Uh, I mean, I would agree that these guys are prophets, Moses, David. Uh, but my point is the ad hominem arguments aren't necessarily going to discredit men who God used. God still uses sinful people. If God didn't use sinful people, he would have no one to use because we're all sinful people. Um, the ad hominem is not going to discount the fact that God still uses certain people. Yeah, and I think what's, in, again, important on this is when people hear, you know, both Sam and Michael saying, well, so what? And and you can't use the standard evenly. Uh, people will interpret from that, hear from that. Well, then, so you're just looking past, you know, Jim Baker, and you're looking past well, Jimmy Swagger, and you're looking past, no. No, these guys, they're not looking here going, oh, yeah, totally cool to have a prostitute and commit adultery. Like, no one no one here on this on this discussion is interested in, in justifying or glossing over. None of us are saying, man, they should still be in ministry. None of us are saying, you know, and, and everyone can reserve their own opinion on this specific issue, but it has nothing to do with cessationism. It has nothing to do with continuationism. We can go through church history. Uh, you, you mentioned Luther, right? Uh, you could talk about Zwingli, you know, Zwingli, who's, who's, who's really famous for the the kind of memorial view of communion and, and stake in his 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 stake in the ground on the more memorial view of communion well he was also an adulterer so should we get rid of the the memorial view of communion not one that i hold personally but i'm certainly not going to get rid of the doctrine on the grounds that he had an affair like that he was sexually immoral uh, like you can't just get rid of all of church history because they had one issue i mean jonathan edwards owned slaves are we gonna get rid of edwards and the puritans because they existed during a time where slavery was taking place again this is sam said it well this is ad hominem this is where you attack the character and reputation of an individual so that you don't have to engage with their doctrine or their teaching now let's be which fair, is every argument this is every so argument many Justin Peters in particular has is always Correct. ad hominem. Not once does he ever actually attack their doctrine and use scripture. They're like, hey, they taught this. This teaching is wrong. Here's why. It's always this person has done this. Therefore, their teaching is wrong. That, that's right. right. So, so again, let me let me reaffirm, Josh. I appreciate you uh, bringing clarity to my statement. So what? I meant. So what does this have to do with what the Bible says? Um, for example, um, you know criticizing John Piper because he was slow in condemning um, Todd Bentley. It's very likely that John knew very little about this man. And I would, I would uh, write that up as, um, as patience and forbearance and wisdom, um, which I think we all should have. So many times our cessationist friends are so quick to pull the trigger on people without asking things about intent, motive, context, um, of course, I, I agree. Todd Bentley has proven himself to be a despicable, immoral man. He should, have, he should not be in ministry. All of us would agree with that. Uh, but again, so what? What does that have to do with what the Bible says? Yeah, that's right. And 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 when we, we're talking about these arguments, these kinds of ad hominem, what we're doing is we're attacking the character of a person so we don't have to engage with their argument, with their doctrine. Now, it would be it would behoove the charismatics among us 
to police our own. And this is this is an area that stems from Azusa, right? Uh, what happened in Azusa is that we had a bunch of people gathering together who were doing the stuff. And then all of the academic spaces started riding against the things that were taking place at Azusa. So the people who were doing the stuff are reading all this all these articles about how they're demon possessed or mentally ill or some kind of mass hysteria that's taking place at Azusa. And they said, you know what? We don't need your fancy book learning. We'll just gather together and, and, and anyone who does the stuff, we won't do all the fancy book learning. So a lot of that ha- had to do with anti-intellectualism, but it also came down to kind of a tribalism that had to do more with their belief of gifts and practice of gifts than it had to do with kind of like faith. I don't want to say faithfulness to living. I don't want to. A lot of the early Pentecostals were, were very faithful to preaching against sin. But what happened in, in Christianity is certainly uh, with the rise of the charismatic movement, we had a lot of celebrities getting on TV and radio, and we couldn't imagine these individuals committing certain kinds of acts of sin. And we really just kind of huddled around them to say, well, they're doing the stuff. They're being used by God. They're clearly anointed. So therefore, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't be looking at uh, the kind of activities of their life. We can look to the miracles as a charismatic, talking to the charismatic movement for a second, not to the cessationist crowd. We actually have to judge prophets by their fruit. Okay. We have to see the lives of individuals. Sam just said it with Todd Bentley. If this guy has disqualified himself from ministry, we, we should rightfully stand up in pulpits and say, hey, we should mark those who are an enemy of the cross of Christ, right? That are wolves in sheep's clothing. These individuals who are coming in to prowl on innocent individuals, that should be the responsibility of pastors. So you can be a charismatic, charismatics, you can be a charismatic and, and draw a line in the sand and say, this is too far. None shall pass. Sorry, that's my only reference to Lord of the Rings that I'll say in this film. Uh, um, Also, (laughs) when we're talking about guys like John G. Lake, maybe you don't know this. John G. Lake uh, had a, a fraud scheme that he was selling stocks got busted for this. Don't know if you know this. Um, there were lies uh, about healings that took place, uh, specific bones that uh, uh, third-party independent journalists went out and, and researched. Uh, in the days that they were happening, turned out to be falsified miracles. Uh, he said a, a girl's arm was healed, and the, the doctor x-rayed it, and it was completely healed after he prayed. Uh, not only is it not true, the doctor said that she was in enormous amounts of pain, and that it was definitely broken. Uh, but because John G. Lake had taught, hey, you, you shouldn't go to doctors, that kind of thing, uh, this child was in tremendous pain. Uh, so it looks like there, again, I don't, I don't know what was happening. I don't know if it was a jo- journalist with a bone to pick, but, but it, it seems as if there, there were lies that took place. There was fraud that took place under John G. Lake's ministry. Uh, with Amy Simple McPherson, right, there are stories of alleged allegations of sexual immorality. Nothing's been proven, but there are alleged stuff. Um, there are actually verified miracles that took place with Washington, D.C. newspapers. Uh, she did divorce her husband. Uh, those things did take place. If you're looking for kind of a balanced overview of Amy Simple McPherson, Amy Simple McPherson's life, uh, Edith L. Uh, Bumfer's book, uh, Everyone's Sister, would be a good one to pick up. It talks about the good and the bad. Uh, Smith Wigglesworth. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, Smith Wigglesworth denounces doctors. He strikes people to heal sicknesses. He had certainly some anti-intellectualism. Uh, and there's accusations of misconduct ab- about him for two specific women who accused him of uh, some kind of misconduct that we don't have tons of writings about. Um, also, Catherine Kuhlman uh, married uh, a man who was already married uh, and then divorced him. So so these all these people, these four individuals that were mentioned, uh, did have sin in their lives. Now, here's what I would encourage Christians to do with these individuals moving forward. If you're going to tell their stories, it's okay to tell stories that say, look what God did. But what we, we don't want to do is create an overinflated 
individual that like we, we put up on a pedestal like they can do no evil we have to just like bible characters just like we do with our own lives acknowledge sin as sin that it's wrong we should denounce it we should reject it but if these acts of sin were repented over uh, and there there was you know general faithfulness in christian living moving forward um we we should also uh live in like manner, you know, rejecting sin, uh, repenting of sin, those kinds of activities, being encouraged by the, their stories of faith, but then simultaneously also being honest with the facts and saying these people faltered in these ways. And if we don't tell the whole story, we're actually doomed to repeat those stories. So I would encourage people, familiarize yourself with the whole thing. Don't, when you listen to cessationists just bashing these guys, what I want you to do is I want you to listen and go, What's right? What's real? What's true in what they're saying? If there is immorality, let's acknowledge it. Let's discover it. Let's let's dig into these stories and let's not like tell a whitewashed story uh, of of these prophets as if they they lived with a, a kind of moral integrity that they didn't. So uh, I think I think that's fair that we should do that. But again, uh, let's also do the same thing with people in scripture as well, though. Josh, David right. did commit adultery. David totally. did have a man murdered. But. Does that mean we we treat him? So, so the arguments on on this side of it is well, we all know these charismatics are attached to these sinful behaviors. Uh, okay, so David was attached to these sinful behaviors. What do we do with him then? So the argument just falls apart when you start actually looking at scripture. Yeah. Plus, for every one of those individuals that Justin Peters cited, uh, we could probably easily cite five thousand who lived godly, pure, holy lives who spoke in tongues and believed in all the gifts. Uh, and furthermore, I, I, I'm very, uh, I'm bothered by this word heretic that is thrown out because somebody believes in the spiritual gifts today. Um, it's, I don't know that any of those individuals he mentioned ever denied the deity of Christ or the incarnation or the Trinity or that justification is by faith alone uh, in Christ alone or that they denied the personal visible second coming of Jesus, uh, or they denied his virgin conception and sinless life. So unless somebody has denied a foundational cardinal doctrine of the faith, or has explicitly denied something in the historic creeds of the church, whether the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed or the Chalcedonian definition, uh, I, th I think we need to be careful in how we use the word heretic. They might have had some goofy doctrines here and there, but uh, everybody does. I mean, I've repented so many times for teaching false doctrine over the years. Um, my eschatology changed on multiple occasions. I had to say, hey, I was wrong about that. Um, my understanding is I was a cessationist for a long time. I had, I had a false doctrine there, had to repent of that. Uh, but again, let's not, let's not just classify everybody we disagree with on secondary issues as heretics. That's good. That's good. And you mentioned it, like, just like we can mention... You said 5,000 names of, of charismatics who, you know, lived holy and righteous and faithful lives who practiced gifts. We, we could and, and actually have a, a list of names of cessationists who have lived immoral lives, who, who did great contributions to the Christian faith. And we're not going to throw out their theological um, uh, uh, things that they've added to the, the Christian movement. We're not going to completely discredit them and their teaching and doctrines because they are what the Bible said they were, fallen human people that would need to repent and need to live faithfully. So um, you guys want to jump to the next clip? Yeah. Yep. Okay, we did tongues on uh, 16, 17. We did immoral, uh, the immorality of the Christians. Sam, this one's going to be a good one. This is this one's talking about talking about you guys. Uh, just so happened you were available in this episode. Piper, Weird. Storms, and Brudem, and Carson described themselves as open but cautious. 
Do they though? So here you have guys with at least some reformed inclination. They have been working really hard to say they believe in a closed canon and sola scriptura, even though they also want to say that in some sense they believe in the continuation of prophecy in tongues. Once you open the door to the modern charismatic teachings, how is your urge and your prompting of the Spirit of God different than Benny Hinn? And who's to say who's right in the issue? You may not understand this. I don't either. But when the Lord talks to me, I obey Him. It's just that simple. I'm not suggesting that anyone who claims to be a reformed charismatic should be classified in the same category as a Benny Hinn. But Benny Hinn's positions are very much connected to the idea that God is still speaking today. So if someone says, God spoke to me, it becomes the ace of spades and it trumps everything. Really, that's the historic trap. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you see that the serpent, that he tempts Eve in such a way as to suggest that God's word wasn't enough. I love that. He's like, hey, I don't want to compare everyone to that but believes in the gifts of the Spirit to Benny Hen, but I will compare them all to Satan that says the Bible's not enough. <laughs> bro, that's so messed up, bro. Like, why would you do that? Okay, uh, sorry. Again, diving in. Sam, let me just start with the first statement. Uh, are you, do you ca- classify yourself as open but cautious? <laughs> Absolutely not. I don't think that's even a legitimate category. Uh, I don't think the Bible gives any justification for merely being open. We are to zealously desire and pursue spiritual gifts. Um, so I, people who call themselves that, I say, no, you're closed and cynical. You're not open, but cautious. Um, my good friend Hayden Hefner here at Bridgeway likes to talk about we should be uh, earnest and wise, which I, I can embrace that. But uh, Wayne Grudem is not open, but cautious. Um, I don't think John is either. Um Don Carson hasn't written much on the subject since his book, Showing the Spirit. Um, I don't know. I don't know that he would warrant that uh, label. I can't speak for him, but I can speak for myself. Sam Waldron, you're wrong. I am far worse than what you envision. I am zealously (laughs) earnest, prayerful, pursuing and practicing all the gifts of the spirit. There's nothing cautious about my approach to, to obeying the commands of scripture, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts especially they may prophesy. Caution implies danger ahead. Watch out. Uh, this, this could get you in trouble. Problem is the Bible never says that. There's not a negative word about the pursuit of spiritual gifts. So uh, yeah, I'd have to take issue with Sam Waldron on that point. Miller. So go ahead. Joshua, oh, I was just say? saying Miller go. Yeah. Oh, I was going to ask Sam the next question. Uh, Sam is a closed Canaan contradictory to continuationism? Absolutely not, for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have to ask whether those books in the canon tell us that revelatory gifts are somehow going to undermine its finality and sufficiency, which it never does. And the fact of the matter is we have multiple texts in the all-sufficient closed canon that tell us to earnestly desire to prophesy and to pursue revelatory gifts. And then here's another point that that I don't think much thought is given to it. If you ask the question, why do they think that revelatory gifts are undermining the finality of the canon? And the reason is because they would say the revelation, which is the basis of prophecy, uh, is of apostolic inerrant authority. And if if it were existent, it would have to be included in scripture. In other words, they say, if God is still giving revelation that is the basis for prophecy, the kind that's talked about in the New Testament, we would have to open up our Bibles and slide it in after the book of Revelation. 
Well, if that's the case, why didn't they do that in the New Testament in the first century? There were probably thousands of revelations being given to Christians, prophetic utterances being given, and yet not one single prophetic utterance is preserved in the canon. But if, but if these uh, revelatory disclosures from God are of apostolic authority and binding on the conscience of all Christians everywhere, why weren't they included in the canon? So the fact that we say that those same kinds of revelatory experiences can happen today, that doesn't mean they have to be included in the canon. They weren't in the first century either. So the argument is just totally fallacious. That's good. I think it's also important to mention that the individuals that D.A. Carson and Sam Storms, Piper and Grudem are being compared to are... Benny Hinn and Satan. So I think that that's, and again, he went out of his way to say, like, I don't think that they're necessarily that far, right? Like, however, uh, the back end of the conversation, he goes, well, the temptation of the devil is to say that the Bible's not enough. What's, what's ironic about that claim is Adam and Eve didn't get a closed canon from God. Like he didn't like write a book, write it all out and hand it to him and say, hey guys, watch this, cherish this and protect this. In fact, the word that God said, don't eat from this tree was probably spoken and was akin to closer to the spoken word of revelation from God, similar to prophecy rather than a closed canonized version that they were supposed to protect. So what's ironic about this is he's saying you should trust the word of God in the context he quotes, it would be akin to prophecy and, and not necessarily a closed canon. Um, I think it's also interesting, again, he's comparing to these individuals rather than other continuationists. We mentioned in our last program, one of the most respected reformed scholars on the planet in the 20th century is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a continuationist, who believed in the gifts of the Spirit, including the gift of prophecy. Are you going to tell me that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones undermined the sufficiency of scripture and that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't believe the Bible was enough. No, he believed the Bible was enough for all that it was supposed to do. And one of the things it was supposed to do was instruct us on the gift of prophecy. You know, Sam just said this. We're basically pitting sufficiency and authority against one another because the authority of the scripture tells us to pursue these things. And they're taking the sufficiency of scripture and then pitting it against the authority of scripture, which tells us to do these very things. It's, it's, it's really easy, guys to compare charismatics with the Cat Kerrs and the Kenneth Copelands and the Todd Bentleys, the people who are on the far spectrum, who, who you wonder, man, is there any fruit at all of, of regeneration taking place in these individuals' lives? It's really easy to compare charismatics uh, to, to that group because it's like, well, if, I, if I'm trying to attack these individuals, if I'm trying to get rid of this doctrine, I want to compare them with the worst extreme excesses rather than, again, early church fathers that we've quoted, Protestant leaders that we've quoted, guys like Martin Lloyd-Jones like we've quoted. There's a rich Christian history of biblically faithful men and women who believed in these gifts and, and to kind of just compare with the extreme excesses in modern history rather than hearkening back to centuries of faithful Christians uh, is disingenuous and wrong. Uh, Miller, it's you got any, disingenuous. Any and the fact is, it doesn't seem like they care to, to represent it any other way. This is not an honesty piece about differences between charismatics and continuationists. This is a hit piece at the end of the day. Um, now, one of the other statements that was made by Josh abuse, I think. He said, "God, if God spoke to me, it becomes the ace of spades and it trumps everything. Really, that's the historic trap. Well, there's truth to that. I, I would agree that if you think that God speaking to you becomes the ace of spades, 
uh, the, the automatic trump card for all thing, then I would agree that you are not following the teachings of the scriptures because we are told in the scriptures that you are to test prophecy, that you are to judge prophecy as it's spoken. Uh, whereas scripture, we're meant to accept it according to Paul. So in 1 Corinthians 14, he'll say, let two or three prophets speak, let others pass judgment. So prophecy, even in the early church, was never treated the same thing as scripture. Right there in the Corinthian church, you have prophecy being judged. And then later on, he'll speak, Paul will speak to the same prophet saying, hey, let him who thinks he's a prophet recognize that what I'm writing are the very words of God. So you see in the exact same context, two standards. One being judged, not to be the ace of spades, not to be the trump card, that would be an error. And the other, to be accepted, to be the trump card, which is the writings of the scripture. And charismatics, by and large, believe that. They don't treat prophecy as a trump card. Um, and I think what's really frustrating is he uses Benny Hinn and then says, but if you believe that God speaks today, you open the door to this, then it's Benny Hinn. And I just go, Benny's wrong. I don't, I don't think he's right. I think prophecy, hearing from God uh, outside of the, the text of Scripture is to be weighed and considered. And then, yes, to be followed if you determine that that really is the Lord. Um, but it cannot contradict the Scriptures. Let me, let me also say something along those lines. The clips that he showed of Benny Hinn. I just want to appeal to the people watching this podcast. For heaven's sake, folks, don't ever think that we think it's good and justified in Scripture or of even any practical benefit to take off your sport coat or your white jacket and sling it around as if it's going to make people fall under the power. If, if you all think that we endorse that kind of behavior, uh, think again. Don't draw conclusions about whether or not the Spirit is working through these gifts today because they chose to show you one of the most outlandish examples of charismatic fanaticism that you could possibly find. Again, it's another form of ad hominem. Those clips are, are as disgusting to us as they are to them. And again, I would just say it just has no bearing on whether or not the Bible teaches us that revelatory gifts and tongues and healing are still operative today. Yeah, that's right. And, and you said it, it, there's, it, it, he makes the statement, you know, Sam Storms and Piper and Grudem. You know, they're really trying hard. They've tried real hard to be continuationist um, and, and somehow believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's it's really not that hard. Actually, you can do both. Um, Christians have been doing it for thousands of years. Uh, it's not difficult. Uh, just quoting a couple of modern guys, uh, the Assemblies of God would be a good example. Uh, they wrote on their statement of Apostles and Prophets. can be found online. Just Google Assemblies of God, Apostles and Prophets, modern-day Apostles and Prophets. They write a statement saying that they don't believe Apostles and Prophets should govern the church, and that they don't believe that there are modern Apostles and Prophets today, though they kind of write this addendum-ish thing. People can be apostolically or prophetically gifted uh, to plant churches or prophesy. But they say this, in fact, uh, the content of prophecy itself should always be tested by uh, uh, by and responsible to the superior authority of the scripture. However, the church should long for authentic prophecy with a message uh, which is relevant to the contemporary needs uh, and subject to the authority of the scripture. So again, here in the Assemblies of God statement, they don't have to try very hard. They just say prophecy, uh, if it is going to exist, 
has to submit itself to the authority of Scripture. We mentioned uh, the, the Scottish Reformers multiple times, uh, but Samuel Rutherford, he has a four-stage process in judging prophetic words. Stage one, they cannot be contradictory to the Bible. Seems pretty good. Doesn't seem to be trying very hard. Uh, they come from godly people. So judge a prophet by their fruit. I mean, that seems like a biblical qualifier, not too difficult. Uh, these people uh, who had these revelations did not claim that their prophecies had the same authority of Scripture. So if someone's saying like, hey, my prophecy should be added to the Bible, you know, uh, this prophecy uh, is binding on all people everywhere. Again, you don't have that authority. Samuel Rutherford, that seems seems to make sense. Uh, number four, uh, they required no one to obey their prophecies. So again, they weren't enforcing individual-based prophetic words, but this was to be judged and weighed and tested within corporate context in these individuals in their conscience before God. So uh, it seems as if modern denominations, old Protestant guys, and Bible itself, 1 Corinthians 14, 29, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 through 38, all kind of bear witness to this message that the Bible is enough, the Bible is sufficient, but also prophecy can exist alongside it. And we don't really have to try that hard. We just believe the Bible and we believe what the Bible says about prophecy. Not too difficult at all. Anybody want to add anything before we move on to clip 19 on worship? Let's go. Getting emails. Okay, let's do it. Charismatic theology has has influenced and affected so much of our thinking and our our theology in ways that we don't often recognize. And I think that's probably the most true with our worship. Worship today, there is this expectation that if the Holy Spirit is present and if we are truly worshiping, there's sort of going to be this tangible felt presence of God, which doesn't find any root in Scripture. There's no description in the New Testament of that sort of expectation. That comes from the charismatic movement in this expectation of the signs and wonders and the felt presence of God. In fact, the praise and worship movement, praise and worship theology, comes directly out of Pentecostalism and charismaticism, but it has now branched beyond charismaticism to where even churches who don't affirm the continuation of sign gifts, who claim to be cessationist, nevertheless worship as if we are expecting this sort of felt presence of God in the context of corporate worship. I like that they went from like people that were really emotional with big stages and big lights to people who were very calm with big stages and big lights. Like I couldn't tell the difference, but I could I could tell they were trying to communicate it. Uh, I, I commend them for it. Who wants to jump in first on this one? Sam, oh, I'd love you. To. Yeah, go oh, for it. Oh yeah. Uh, I I don't even know where to begin. He says that um, the expectation of our of being moved in our affections. And sensing the uh, manifest presence of God is something that has only happened today from the charismatic movement. No, it comes from the Bible. Um, think about think about the, the nature of this this fellow's argument. He's basically saying we don't have explicit references to responses, um, whether physiological or emotional, to the manifest presence of God. And I'll say, well, where do you have biblical texts that say? that we should uh, worship in lifeless formalism. We shouldn't feel anything at all. I mean, just listen Just listen to a couple of these texts. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. It's not enough to take refuge in the Lord. You have to rejoice. Well, that's an affection. That's an emotion. Um, let them ever sing for joy. Don't, you can't just sing. You have to do it for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name, you can't just proclaim the name. You have to love the name may exult in you. Again, Psalm 9, I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. These are affections of the heart. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, Psalm 32, 11. Um, Psalm 68, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. I could go on and on and on. I've got a dozen more texts very similar to this in both the Old and New Testaments that talk about the fact that for worship to be honoring to God, it has to engage the heart. Remember Jesus, was it Matthew 15? He said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. If we worship with a disengaged heart, it's nothing more than lifeless formalism. First um, Peter 1.8, he says, even though you don't see Jesus now, you love him. And though you do not see him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That sounds like affections, emotions, passions, desires, uh, zeal, fear, hope, love, um, brokenness. We could go on and on about all the affections of the heart that I think God says, am I not worthy of those? Am, am I not sufficiently glorious and beautiful and gracious that it would stir the totality of your being? And then one final comment, and I'll let you guys jump in. If worship is not designed to awaken and intensify affections for God, why does the Bible tell us to sing? What's the purpose of singing? Uh, we could just as easily eliminate all instruments, eliminate all um, melodies, and just recite the words of a song in prose without any musical accompaniment, without singing. The purpose of singing is to enable us to give expression to deep, heartfelt affections that mere talking, mere reading of words simply can't accomplish. So uh, the idea that somehow the kind of worship that we're experiencing today is only started in the 20th century with charismatics is ludicrous. Just go read the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, and you'll see where it comes from. Yeah, like undignified worship. That's that's the beginning of a charismatic thing. That wasn't in the Bible at all. Speaking of things that aren't in the Bible, let's read some Bible verses. Um, my favorite one uh, on this subject, Psalm 105, 2 through 4. Sing to him, sing praises to him, to all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So we're told to, to worship and seek God's presence in the midst of worship. Like there's literally a Bible verse. Like again, it feels like the time that they were saying, you know, there's only three periods of concentrated miracles. And we have this quotation from Jeremiah that says, actually, from the days of Moses all the way to my day, in Jeremiah's day, God is continuing to do miracles. It's like they make a statement. They, they build up all these qualifiers to say, you know, this is an invention of the charismatic movement. We know that there's only three periods. And then you have a Bible verse that intentionally completely undermines and contradicts everything that they just said. We hear, you're, you know, you're not really supposed to expect God's presence to inhabit the praise of his people, right? Like you don't expect to seek God's presence in the midst of worship and expect an encounter with the Holy Spirit in the midst of worship, right? Well, we actually have a Bible verse. We don't need to lean on Azusa Street. We don't have to lean on the charismatic movement. We don't have to lean on felt experiences. We can actually lean on the scriptures, on the Bible. Now, there are certainly, uh, you know, uh, extraordinary manifestations of this kind of activity taking place in the church history, uh, in the scriptures, uh, in Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5 and 2 Chronicles 7, uh, 7. We see accounts of the glory of God filling the temple. But, but what is the temple if it's not a space? 
place of worship. Uh, it's when they inaugurate the temple, they start the worship that God's glory fills that place. So again, this kind of idea of expectation that God would in fact inhabit the praises of people, I think is a biblical expectation. We see extraordinary manifestations of that in specific moments in redemptive history. But we also see a kind of normingness of that throughout the commands of Scripture that all people everywhere ought to seek his presence, seek his strength continually in the midst of worship. So, I mean, I, I just th- hey, this Josh. seems to be a I have a problem with the culture of the charismatic movement and I want to push against it. And anything I can do that can fix their worship, which frankly is the reason the charismatic movement has gone has done so much. Right. It's the reason that the doctrine has spread is because things like the Vineyard Church, things like Bethel uh, church movements that were really good at popularizing music and heartfelt worship has caught the hearts of people and then caught the minds of people. Uh, and I understand why th- they would have a problem with that. Well, what their problem is, is they're f- terrified of their own emotions. They have seen certain individuals and we acknowledge this Do some people uh allow worship to degenerate into emotionalism. Sure. Uh, We're not endorsing that at all, but I think they're afraid of their own affections. They don't want to be seen uh, as weeping or rejoicing or with hands lifted because people might think, well, that means you're theologically wishy-washy. I I, I will give you, uh, and I, we could find the quote, um, bring up our good friend, John MacArthur, who I think it was at the strange fire conference who actually said on a panel discussion, he said, sometimes I wish that there was no music and no singing at all, and we would just recite the words because emotion kind of gets in the way. And I think, good grief, what do you do with Psalm 63? My mouth will praise you with joyful lips, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Or, um, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. Um, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. Manifest presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures evermore. Um, Psalm 36. uh, The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. Psalm 37. Four. Delight yourself in the Lord. Uh, Psalm 147. Praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So I... I just cannot, I cannot imagine how anybody could justify this notion of, uh, you know, of a robotic, lifeless formalism that's terrified of affections, when in fact the Bible commands these affections and actually says, if your heart isn't engaged in your worship, you dishonor me. Golly, I, I kind of curious, if he really thinks that the emotion of worship gets in the way of true worship, uh, I'm kind of curious to know what does the marriage look like there, John? <laughs> I mean, does the emotion get in the way of you showing your wife affection? Um, does you showing your son emotion, wanting to hug and hold and tell him how amazing he is, does that get in the way of showing real affection? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Nobody shows affection emotionless as if that's somehow good and right. And I think you're right. I think they are scared of their emotion. But let me just quote what he says um, this is Scott Annual. He says, charismatic theology has influenced and affected so much of our thinking and theology in ways that we don't often recognize. I think it's the most true where there are worship. And to that, I'd say, you're welcome. Uh, I think that, that's actually a good thing. I, I take that as a compliment. 
Um, he also says today in worship, there's an expectation that if the Holy Spirit is present and if we are truly worshiping, there will be a tangible felt presence of God, which doesn't find any root in scripture. Hmm. How about this one? James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will appreciate it. <laughs> draw near to God and you'll never feel anything because he's just nowhere near you. No, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And one of the things that happened even in Jesus's day when the disciples came back and they reported all the things that took place, says he rejoiced. God's presence drew near. People were healed. People were delivered. And the Lord rejoiced. The scriptures actually tell us to expect these very things. And the fact that you're saying that this is happening and you see this as a bad thing, I'm like, what Bible are you reading? And what does your relationships look like? I mean, I, I just can't fathom that. It seems like you're saying relationship with God should be stoic, cold, and unaffectionless. Whereas I'm looking at it going, the beauty about some of these songs that are that came out of the vineyard in particular, they did exactly what God would want. They allowed us to bypass the, the mind and get straight to the heart, to sing things that are true of God. That's why I think uh, Paul even says, hey, be filled with the Spirit. How are we to do this? Speaking to, to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody with your heart. It's actually commanded to do these things, and that should be the expectation, is that there be a heartfelt experience when doing these things. I, I just, I don't understand this. This seems like one of the best compliments you could pay the charismatic movement. We'll take it. Take it to Badge and Honor. Hey guys, uh, let's wrap this program up. For those who are watching, I just, I want to give us some closing thoughts. So uh, Sam, I'll ask you to, for some closing thoughts to cessationist, to continuationist, uh, Miller, same kind of thing. But before we do some closing thoughts, I want to remind the makers of the documentary, open invitation. Uh, you guys can come on, uh, whether you want to fly out, do it in person, uh, you know, have some food so that you know that we're not like uh, here to pounce on you and devour you, uh, but definitely want to have a discussion and engage with the theological arguments with the Bible text of scripture. Now, of the ad hominem stuff, not you've got bad guys, we've got bad guys. Let's just talk about what the Bible says. We'd love to do that. We'd love to connect with you on those things. Uh, additionally, uh, we would extend that kind of grace once again to say, these are our cessationist brothers. We're not making videos like this because we have a bone to pick, that we're bitter, that we're angry. No, we actually want to respond because we feel like the Bible is being attacked when you attack the continuation of the gifts. When you say these gifts have ceased, we feel like you're putting the Bible's authority into jeopardy. So we want to respond respond as faithful Bible teachers and say, look, this is too far. We don't want to do this. So this is just a reminder. We love our cessationist brothers. If you're out there, you disagree with us, man, we, we have love and affection for you. We believe you're Christian brothers. We're not trying to hate on you. But at the same time, uh, we do think that you're wrong and, and very wrong and dangerously wrong and, and, a, and a wrong sort of way that, that, that causes us to make videos like this. So, uh, Invitations open. You're always welcome on the show. If you want to come down, whether you want to do it digitally or in person, we have that opportunity open. Uh, Sam, uh, let me toss it over to you for some closing thoughts. Yeah, I would say the same invitation, Josh, that you just issued. Um, any of, of our cessationist friends reading my blog at samstorms.org, um, if, if I've made some mistakes in interpretation of the text, if you think I have misunderstood the word of God, I welcome your comments. I've received numerous comments, but they are all ad hominem. Not a single one is engaged with the text of scripture or my arguments. So again, it's an open invitation. Anybody wants to respond. And I would say just one final thing. I know the visceral kind of gut reaction 
that people have to some of these uh, these clips that are in the film where they see people doing some silly things that aren't helpful. Um, people, please don't base your interpretation of the Bible on that. I said that earlier in our time here, but I just know so many people just go, Ew. they recoil when they see that. And guess what? We go, and we recoil, but we don't allow that to affect how we read the word of God. So keep your finger on the text and not your eyes on the clips that they are so um, egregiously showing. Amen. Miller? Yeah, I'd be curious to know, uh, just a one closing thought. Uh, I'd be curious to know where the cessationist would define, what's the line when somebody crosses over into emotionalism? Because it's really hard to tell for me. It just sounds like showing emotion is the problem uh, entirely. And I, I really don't know. And they never give a clear definition. They just show clips of things that they don't like. Like oftentimes they'll show a clip of some person screaming out who's probably getting delivered from a demon. And they'll say that, that right there. Well, again, you know, demons get cast out. Some left with a scream according, even in Jesus's day. And I think many cessationists would look at the ministry of Jesus and go, yeah, that, that right there, that's emotionalism. Uh, or, you know, some person who's crying, wailing, crying. Maybe that person just got healed of something. And, and that right there, that's just too much. Uh, I just don't know where they draw the line. And I think at the end of the day, Sam is correct. I think they're just afraid of those emotions. Okay, guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program of Remnant Radio. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button, like the video, and I would encourage you to subscribe to the newsletter. Links for the newsletter can be found in the description. If you get the uh, newsletter subscription, when we get finished with this series, we will be releasing what is probably close to a 40-page document right now, responding line by line to everything that we can find in the cessationist documentary. Uh, hopefully, you guys are engaging with us here, learning about the gifts of the Spirit while we're also responding to the cessationist arguments. But we tons of playlists uh, where we've collected videos just like this so uh, probably right now videos are going to pop up where you've got playlists where you can watch uh, the cessationist series or uh, maybe the next installment in that series but make sure to hit the subscribe button as we're coming out with content like this every single week blessings guys we'll see you next time want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.